Turn to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. There was a well-known Southern Baptist preacher born in the year 1886 by the name of R.G. Lee. I don't know if you've, any of you have ever heard of him or not. Um, but uh, he preached a famous sermon called Payday Someday. He preached that sermon over a thousand times. What I didn't know about this guy was, I don't know, I didn't ever figure it out mathematically, I guess, but he was born in 1886. Well, I heard him preach that sermon in 1974, the last year of his life, and he was almost 90 at the time. His voice was starting to slur a little bit, but I understood the message, payday someday. His text was from 1 Kings 21. It was about how King Ahab really desired in a strong way his neighbor's vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, a man by the name of Naboth. He wanted it really bad. He wanted it so bad, he ended up, to make a long story short, he had Naboth killed, and he took control of the vineyard. Just an absolutely despicable and utterly selfish act. So the prophet Elijah comes up to him and he, with a message from God. Naboth had been stoned to death by Ahab, and the dogs had licked up the blood of Naboth. And, and, and here's the message Elijah had for Ahab. He says, Thus says the Lord, King Ahab, In the place where the dogs licked, licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. R.G. Lee said there would be a payday someday for King Ahab, and there was. And that's true. God's judgment against sinners is inescapable. R.G. Lee said in that sermon this, listen to this, he said, Payday someday is written in the constitution of God's universe. The retributive providence of God is a reality. It's going to happen. As certainly as the laws of gravity are a reality. In other words, God will pay back sinners for the evil they do. This is what we're dealing with in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech, we're going to find out about tonight, the son of Gideon, will find out what it's like to be paid back by God for his evil. Let's start in Judges chapter 9 with Abimelech's rise to power in the first six verses. Abimelech's rise to power. It says, And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, that's the son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of the leaders of Shechem. Which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. They were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our relative. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal Berith, with whom... Uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all Bel Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar, which was in Shechem. As we enter Judges chapter 9, we do not see the familiar pattern that we normally see in Judges. You have the pattern of sin, and then usually judgment of God, and then a cry for deliverance, and then God sends a judge to deliver the people, and then they have deliverance from their enemy. That's not how it is here in Judges 9. The end of chapter 8 does start that sequence when Gideon, the judge, died, and then it says abandon, or Israel abandoned the Lord, and they turned to idols, as it says at the end of chapter 8. That's where the similarity in the pattern stops. 
There's no punishment from God mentioned here after Israel turns to their idols. No punishment from God. There's no enemy sent by God to oppress them. There's no help, no cry for help from Israel. There's no judge sent to deliver them. This is something different here in this chapter. We have a break in the normal, of action, uh, normal action in the book of Judges to focus on one character. That's Abimelech, one of Gideon's sons. Now, let's briefly review who Abimelech is. Look at chapter 8, verse 30 and 31. Judges 8, 30. It says, Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. So Abimelech was the son of Gideon's concubine in Shechem, not one of the direct descendants. His name, as I said last week, means my father is king, or the king is my father. There's only one of the other 70 sons of Gideon mentioned, that's Jotham, which we'll see in this chapter. His name means the Lord is perfection. So Gideon and his wives and his 70 sons lived in Ophrah. That's where they, they lived at. His concubine, however, lived in Shechem, which was 30 miles south of Ophrah. Abimelech left Ophrah at some time, and his, he left his half-brothers behind, and he went to Shechem to where his mothers and her relatives lived. And he had a definite plan in mind, and what, what was that? He wanted to be king. At all costs, he wanted to be king. Now, I said last week that some students of the Bible think that Gideon became a king or that he really wanted to be a king, but I don't see any really hard, fast proof for that in chapter 8 or 9 that that happened. One of the reasons they say that is because Gideon named his son his son of the concubine, Abimelech, which we said last week, and we talked about that, my father is king. We don't know why he named him that. It only says he named him that. On the other side of the argument is chapter 8, verse 23, where Gideon refuses to be king. When they ask him to rule over them, he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So Gideon declines the offer of, of to be a king or to be a ruler of some type. He did govern as judge, but not as a king, I don't believe. But the son of his concubine, Abimelech, had definite designs on becoming a ruler over Shechem, his hometown, where his mother was from. He was a highly ambitious uh, person, or rather his mother was from there at least. He was highly ambitious. Maybe his name played into that. Maybe he thought all his life, my father's king. I'm going to be a king one day. That name may have driven him somewhat. So he decides to go to Shechem and plead his case before his mother's relatives. He says to them, why should all the 70 sons of Gideon rule? Would it be better not to, or to, to have just one ruler, me, in charge of this whole operation in Shechem? Well, you know, when you, when you read that, first of all, there's no indication at all that Gideon's 70 sons were ruling anybody. Uh, if, according to eight, chapter 835, it says, when Gideon died, that the people didn't show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon. It accorded with all the good that he had done to Israel. There's no indication they were ruling any, anybody at all. Uh, the people forsook the Lord. Uh, they forgot about Gideon, it seems, though, at the end of chapter, chapter 8. But the, he presents his case to the relatives that this is, this is so. He wants to rule instead of the 70 sons, he says, of Gideon. But then the relatives of, of Abimelech present his case before the leaders of Shechem, and they all agree to follow Abimelech. What do they do? They give him money from the temple of Belbarith. That's the God they decided to follow in chapter 8, verse 33, after the death of Gideon. So they give him money, and what does he do? Abimelech goes out with his money and hires worthless and reckless fellows, it says, these people were basically devoid of any character at all. They were idle. You may have seen people like this, by the way. They were irresponsible. 
they were uh, non-productive, good-for-nothings. My father would have called them ne'er-do-wells. I've heard him say that phrase. Uh, that's how they were. What, what he did was he hired hitmen. He basically was like a mafia guy. He hired hitmen. He acted like a mafia guy throughout the whole thing, by the way, to kill the 70 sons, take out the 70 sons of Gideon. And he, he gave the 70 sons of Gideon, this, the 70 pieces of silver would average one piece of silver per son that was killed. So this guy went out and hired hitmen to do this job. So Abimelech and his team of hitmen traveled 30 miles back to Ophrah to carry out this job. And verse 5 records that they killed every one of Jotham's, or rather Gideon's sons except for one. Now it says they were all killed on one stone. That means literally, and, and the phrase is difficult, but for one thing's for sure, they had to murder every son one by one as they just waited to be killed, all 70 of them. So this is nothing other than calculated, cold-blooded, ruthless murder of innocent victims by Abimelech, a, a, a tyrant. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, hides himself. He escapes and hides himself. But by this horrible act, Abimelech eliminates any possible opposition, real or imagined, to the so-called kingship that he conjured up himself to be the king of Shechem. What a great honor that is, right? He eliminates all opposition. And in verse 6, they make him king. Now, let me make a couple of observations on this. <clears throat> One is, there was no need for a king. Shechem, the city, as you read the chapter, already had leaders governing the city anyway. They didn't need a king. Um, secondly, Abimelech was made ruler over a very limited area, Shechem and maybe the surrounding area there, not over the entire country of Israel or anything like that. He's more like a chieftain or a petty king than anything else. He was kind of a renegade king. He was self-absorbed. He was self-promoting. He was hate-filled. He was ruthless. He was godless. He was, he was a person who manipulated people. He was a person who destroyed people's lives. He used people that he felt stood in his way. This is the kind of guy you have in Abimelech, the, the son of Gideon's concubine. He was unlike his father in chapter 8, verse 23, 23, who said, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. But Gideon, Abimelech said, no, I'm going to rule over you. He had this unquenchable thirst for power. Well, how did he go about achieving this goal? Well, he, he appeals to the people of Shechem on the basis of family ties. In verse 1, he addresses his relatives, including the household of his grandfather. And then in verse 2, he says, remember... I am your bone and your flesh. I'm your relative. And then what happens in verse 3? They were inclined to follow Abimelech because he said, because they said, he's our relative. He's our relative. We should follow him. He's our flesh and bone. Now, doesn't this often happen in choosing leadership? People push for their relatives and their friends to be leaders. You know, your favorite Uncle Frank may be a great uncle, but he may not be suited for leadership, right? But people want to push their relatives and friends all the time. The friends and relatives in question may be qualified to lead. Maybe they're not qualified to lead. Depends. But leadership should never be recommended because someone is a relative or a friend. And that kind of thing happens in churches all the time when it comes to churches in particular. Um, you have to ask the question, how does this choice we're making for leadership in the church line up with the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? That's the question. It's not, is this a friend or a relative I can promote? But how do they line up with the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? Now, obviously, we all fall short of those qualifications. An overseer then must be this, he must be that. Look, nobody can meet up to those, that standard perfectly. 
But as Mike says, it's not direction. It's, it's not perfection, rather. Hopefully he'll not change that. It's not perfection, but it's direction. Don't change that around, Mike, please. If it is perfection, then guess what? There's soon going to be defection because there's not going to be any church leadership left. Uh, nobody's perfect, right? But leadership in a church should never be chosen solely on the basis of friendship or relationships or because the guy's a good businessman or something like that. I've heard all those things. There's more to it than that. So the leadership in Shechem is not wise in choosing Abimelech to be the king on the basis solely of relationships. But there's a greater problem here. The foundational problem is that Abimelech was promoting himself. It was Abimelech that took the initiative to make this happen. He decided to go to Shechem himself. He sought an audience with his family members. He eliminated the supposed opposition against him. He, in a word, he promoted himself. Self-promotion. You ever hear about that in the church? It happens all the time as well. People will approach you and they will, maybe they're dissatisfied with the present leadership in their church and they'll say, I've got, you know, I've got these qualifications to be a leader. I've been here and I've done that. And they promote themselves. They, promote their, they, they feel like their agenda, the one they bring to the church, is going to advance the church somehow. But that's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? That kind of mindset. Self, we should never be about self-promotion, promoting ourselves. Maybe some of you out there are thinking, I want to be a, a pastor one day or something like that. That's, that's fine, but never go around promoting yourself. There's a guy in, in Jeremiah 45.5 named Baruch, and apparently his desire was for personal ambition. But the Lord told Jeremiah to tell him, Baruch, are you seeking great things for yourself? He says, do not seek them. That's a, that's a great question, isn't it? Are you seeking great things for yourself? What's your motivation behind what you're doing here? And if that is the motive, it's all wrong. The whole spirit of the Bible is against the idea of self-promotion. Jesus said, he that exalts himself shall be humbled, but he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So Abimelech becomes a king of sorts over a city in the surrounding area, maybe, uh, to some degree. There's one other thing here I want to mention with this. I believe also Gideon's polygamy caused this problem, in addition to self-promotion and relationships and all that. Had he not gauged in that activity, this might have all been inverted. He wouldn't have had a, had a concubine, for one thing, to cause this other problem. So polygamy in the Bible led to all kinds of problems down the road. And one final thought. Was, Gideon, was Abimelech a judge? Is this the next judge after Gideon? The answer to that is no. The Lord never chose him to be a judge. It doesn't say he was a judge. He was not a judge of Israel. So the first six verses describe Abimelech's rise to power as a king. Now in verses 7 to 21, we have Jotham's fable, F-A-B-L-E, Jotham's fable. We'll talk about that in a second. Look at verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The youngest son of Gideon, Jotham, was the only one to survive the massacre of Abimelech. He, by the way, he's exactly the opposite of Abimelech. It's even reflected in his name. His name means the Lord is perfect. What a great name, right? The Lord is perfect. But upon hearing the news of this new king, they've elected Abimelech, his half-brother, to be king. Jotham climbs up to the top of Mount Gerizim to tell a fable. Obviously, he cannot speak to the men of Shechem in the city because they see him, he's going to be killed on sight, right? So he climbs a 1,000-foot elevation on top of Mount Gerizim. By the way, the, the, the mountain overlooked the, uh, 
Shechem from the south. He climbs up this mountain to, to, to give his message to the city below. Now, you might wonder, and I've wondered about this in reading the Bible, how could these people down below hear this? A thousand feet down. How is this possible? This guy's on top of this mountain. Uh, how do they hear this? Well, first of all, we believe it because the scripture says it's all we need. But experiments have been done to test this out, and it's been proven that, hey, this works. This is a natural outdoor amphitheater. It's not the only one in Israel like this, too. People can hear below what the guy's saying up there. It's the same place where the blessings and cursings of the law were uttered from Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, next to, near each other in Shechem area, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So the acoustics are such that the message below was well heard. What about the fable itself? Let's read verses 8 to 15. Here's what, here's what uh, Jotham says. <clears throat> he says to the men of Shechem, Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So the actual fable here is found in chapters in verses 7 to 15. The application to the fable is in verses 16, or rather, uh, yeah, 16 to 20. What's a fable? A fable is a short story that tells a moral lesson involving creatures or plants or animals or inanimate objects speaking or behaving like human beings. And by the way, this fable in Judges 9, uh, you'll be glad to know uh, Megan is, was considered, I read this at least, considered a, a classic in world literature. Um, but in verse 7, Jotham begins by saying, if you, want, if you men of Shechem want a favorable response from God, then you better take heed to the message I'm telling you. And so he tells this fable, this story, to get their attention. Verse 8, he tells a story concerning trees that wanted to anoint a king over them. The first three candidates, he, he says, talks about to try to anoint, are the three most viable plants in Israel, the olive tree, the fig, and the grapevine. In verse 9, the olive tree refuses to become king because he says, my fatness, my olive oil, honors God and men. Why would I want to become king? I've got a purpose already. You see, olive oil in that day was a very necessary product, still is, to use for cooking oil, for medicine, for laxatives, for fuel, for lamps, for anointing, uh, for uh, sacrificial offerings, all kinds of stuff. And so the offering, the olive tree says, I refuse, I've got purposes in life, I don't need to do this. I'd rather not anoint myself as king. Uh, I'd rather be a blessing to others. In verses 10 and 11, the fig tree refuses to stop making sweetness and fruit for others. The fig was a, was a staple in that part of the world. He had a purpose as well. In verses 12 to 13, the grapevine refuses, since he too has a purpose. Now, what do these three have in common? The fig tree, the olive, and the grapevine. Well, they're all very productive, right? They're all bene- beneficial to society. They help out in many ways in society. They help out the world. They're helpful products to the human race. They're all productive. But there's a fourth candidate. That's in verses 14 and 15. 
It is the bramble. The bramble is basically a thorn bush. Basically, it's good for nothing. It doesn't produce anything. It has no value. In fact, it's a constant source of irritation to farmers because uh, it would grow wild out there and it would catch you know, scrub fires. Wind would come by and scrub fires would start and it would spread like mad as the brambles would encroach on the farmer's land. So it was not only non-productive, it was absolutely detrimental to a farmer. But look, at the, look how the, the bramble verse answers in verse 15 when they invite him to be the king. He says, come, take refuge in my shade. That's ridiculous. How can a thorn bush offer shade to anything? There's no shade in a thorn bush at all. But he says, if you don't elect me as king, the bramble says, may fire come out and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon were known in the Bible as being stately and majestic trees. He says, I'll even, my, my, me as a bramble, I'll even destroy the cedars of Lebanon. Well, what's the point of this fable? Abimelech is the bramble. He's the thorn bush. He really has nothing to offer. He's not productive like the olive and the fig and the grape are. He's destructive, as a matter of fact. He has a high opinion of himself, thinking that he should be a great king, but he can no, offer no real security to the people of Shechem, and this is what Jotham is trying to get across. He merely uses the people of Shechem to achieve his own ends. He would eventually be the means of their destruction. What's the application of this fable? It's in verses 16 and 20. Now, therefore, if you have dealt, Jotham says, if you have dealt well, dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, if you have dealt well with Jeroboam in his house and have dealt well with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech and let, all, let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. He talks about truth and integrity in this section. Making Abimelech king did not involve truth and integrity. Not at all. By the way, truth and integrity should be the standard by which we judge everything, shouldn't it? Everything should be based on that. We should always ask ourselves the question, is what we're doing based on the truth, the truth of God, right? If we take a certain course of action, will it maintain integrity for the gospel's sake, or will we compromise our integrity? Truth and integrity, vitally important, right? Unless you're Abimelech and you don't care about truth and integrity, and he obviously didn't. Now we have some information, some more information regarding Gideon as well here. You can almost hear the passion in Jotham's voice. He said, my father fought for you, Gideon. My father risked his life for you. The literal rendering of that phrase is this. My father threw his own life forward for you. It meant that when Gideon fought against Midian, he had total disregard for his own personal safety. A little, little silent on Gideon. What he did, he did for the people of Israel. He sacrificed himself, if needs be, to do it for them. Very unselfish in, in the battle. Well, in verse 18, Jotham charges the Shechemites as being accomplices in the crime of killing the 70 sons of Gideon. They funded the project, didn't they? Look at verse 18. He says, um, You have risen up, up against my father's house and killed him. You've made Abimelech, the, the son of his maidservant, king over you. That's not the verse I'm looking for. It's somewhere there. Anyway, they funded the project. They helped him with it. 
And he calls them out on this. He says, you guys are guilty of this. And Jotham says, your king Abimelech is, and by the way, he throws this in as well, your king Abimelech is the son of my father's maidservant, my father's concubine. He's not even one of the direct descendants, which is another put down. At the end of verse 18, he gets to the real reason they made Abimelech king. What does he say? He says, because he's your relative. That's why you guys made him king. He even recognizes it. So the men of Shechem have done, if they've done the right thing, if they've done the right thing, then well and good, he says. But if not, he says, then may Shechem and Abimelech destroy each other. So he gives us this fable. Verse 21, what happens after that? Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. He's a wanted man. He delivers this message and he flees for his life because, and he hides out. He knows they're going to kill him if he doesn't. He hides out in a place called Beer, a site that cannot be identified, by the way. But this fable was a great sermon and got the point across, didn't it? So his life would have been on the line. Well, that brings us to the revolt of Shechem in verses 22 to 41. Yes, this is a long chapter. Verses 22 to 41, but it's all one unit, so we're going to stick with it. The revolt of Shechem. Let's read. uh, How do you think, by the way, the people of Shechem would respond to this message, this fable, this sermon? Verse 22, now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come Their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, on the men of Shechem who strengthened their hands to kill his brother. How do you think they responded to this sermon, this fable of Jotham? Well, in many ways, they responded as many people respond to a, a sermon. They don't really take a whole lot of action at all. They don't repent. They don't dethrone Abimelech. There's there's trouble that brews up, but they cannot expect a favorable response from God because. They don't really do anything to end it, except they, they, they'll do some things in time to come, but they don't take the, the definite action to dethrone him. Things continue as they are. But verse 22 tells us that Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Now, that's interesting. He rules over three year, Israel three years. Understand that when, uh, if it says Israel in this, in this book of Judges, it doesn't necessarily mean the entire nation. It's restricted to the locale in this context of Shechem and the surrounding area. Earlier, the text calls Abimelech a king, by the way, but here it's the word translated ruled is derived from the word for captain or official. One commentator said it's the exercise of power at a lower level than that wielded by kings. It's the exercise of power at a lower level than that wielded by kings. So the nature of this rule seems to be more like a local chieftain. As I said, a petty king rather than a real king. He's more of a tyrant than he is a king. More of a dictator, you might say, in some ways. So the question that might be asked as we're reading all this, where is God in all this anyway? Where is God? Has he disappeared? Where is he at? Well, in verse 23, we see his intervention. It says, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. The men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. They, God God is here. This is a good reminder, by the way, of God's providence. Mike talked about God's providence this morning, his sovereignty. For three years, Abimelech was governing the people. He's, we might be tempted to think the Lord has nothing to do with these circumstances at all. He has absolutely nothing to do with circumstances. This guy is just doing what he wants to, ruling. But God is sovereign regardless of what the circumstances appear to be. He's working in our lives even though we may not be aware of it. And a lot of times we look at circumstances and we say, well, 
I don't understand what's going on here at all. I don't get it. It doesn't seem like God's here at all, but God is here and he's working in our lives. And always remember that. And so he sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. As a result of this, Shechem begins to, be, to revolt against Abimelech, although they don't succeed. Why does God bring this all about? Look at verse 24. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. This is the central thought of the whole chapter. God will see to it that justice is done. And that's the, the thought of the whole chapter. Abimelech sinned in killing Gideon's sons. Um, it was a violent death, violent death that he, he committed here. Abimelech is guilty. He's going to pay. The men of Shechem are also guilty. They're going to pay because they were willing accomplices. What does the Bible say? It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, what if Gideon had taken that attitude in chapter 8? Instead of taking personal revenge like we saw he did last week, what if he had taken the attitude, let the Lord do it? It would have been different, right? So we need to leave revenge. Anything, anything, anytime we want to get revenge against someone, we need to leave that in the hands of God. In verse 25, Shechem starts their revolt. Stay with me here. There's a lot of details. By staging highway robbers to be a thorn in Abimelech's head. Look at verse 25. Let's read through this, verse 40 here, 41. It says in verse 25, The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains. They robbed all who might pass by along the road, and it was told to Abimelech. Now Gael, yeah, we have a new story in the, in the, in the, in the account here. The Gael, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives. You have to have your relatives with you. And crossed over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. They went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and trowed them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? Who is Shechem that we should serve him? <clears throat> is he not the son of Jeroboam? And if Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would therefore that this people were under my authority. Then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem. <clears throat> Behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, rise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie and wait in the field. In the morning, <clears throat> as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with you come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the people who were with them arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with them arose from the ambush. When Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You are seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. Gael spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land, and one company comes by the way of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your boasting now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. So Gael went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And so you see in verse 25 that, that they, they start this, this revolt by staging highway robbers out there to rob people. That's how they do it, just to aggravate Abimelech. In verse 26, you have a new rival that comes on the scene by the name of Gael. 
And it appears from verse 28 that he is a native citizen of Shechem. Verse 26 tells us that he had the, the support of his relatives just like Abimelech did. So I guess if you live in Shechem, you better have your, the support of your relatives. You're going to get nowhere, right, in that city. It's all about who you know in, in Shechem, especially if you know your relatives. So the men of Shechem put their trust in Gael as their new leader, and they throw a big party. They probably got drunk. And, and in the midst of all this, Gael starts to curse Abimelech. And he says, why should we serve him? And in verse 29, he throws down the challenge for Abimelech to come out and fight him. Zebul, who's some kind of city official who serves under Abimelech, sends a secret message to Abimelech telling him about this revolt. And so he advises Abimelech to set an ambush at night, according to verses 32 to 34. Then in the morning they could attack. Abimelech and his men divide into four companies, and they start to come out of their hiding places. Gael is stationed by the city gate, and so is Zebul. Gael doesn't know that Zebul has already secretly given information to Abimelech about this revolt. So he says to Zebul, look, people are coming now from the tops of the mountains because Abimelech's coming out of the ambush now. Gael says, you're seeing things. It's just a mountain, the, t- the shadow of the mountains. But Gael insists that it's true. And in verse 38, Zebul knows he has the upper hand as the guys are coming, converging on Gael. And he says to Gael, where's your boasting now? Literally, where's your mouth now? You had a, such a big mouth talking about Abimelech, how you're going to put him down. Back up your talk now. The result is Gideon, or rather Gale and his men flee before Abimelech, and they're driven out of Shechem. So he gets rid of this opposition, but Abimelech is not finished yet. Verses 42 to 45, Abimelech defeats the city of Shechem. Let's read verses 42 to 45. It says there, It came about the next day that the people went out to the field and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. When he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he arose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with them dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. The other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he raised the city, and he sowed it with salt. The citizens of Shechem decided to resume their normal lives, and so they go out to the next day to work in the fields. But again... Abimelech sets an ambush. And what does he and his men do? They rise up and they kill the men, the workers in the field. They kill all of them. Then they go to the city and they kill all the people there too. Then they destroy the city. Then they raise it to the ground. And it says they sow it with salt, which is not fully known what that is. Probably an act by which they declare the city barren and desolate and cursed. So they sow it with salt. You can see what a tyrant Abimelech is, but still he's not done. Verses 46 to 49, Abimelech destroys the tower of Shechem. Look at verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the temple of el It was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down the branch from the trees and lifted it up and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise. And all the people also cut down each his branch and followed Abimelech and put them in the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over against those inside so that all the men of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. He had destroyed the city, but now the tower in Shechem still stood, located somewhere in relation to the city. It doesn't tell us where. This is the last line of defense of Shechem. Those who were responsible for the tower and defense were in the tower. They sought refuge inside the tower. 
They not only entered the tower, but into the very chamber of Elbereth, which may be the same as Baalbereth, a god. They might have thought that this deity, this Canaanite deity, would protect them, so they go in for protection into this inner chamber. Abimelech has a strategy. He goes down to the mountain, up to the mountain, cuts down a tree limb, and he says to everybody, do what I've done, follow me. They all cut down their tree limbs as well, and they all follow him back to the tower, which, where, where he piles up the branches next to the building and sets it on fire. As a result of this, a thousand people die. It's amazing, this guy. But Abimelech is still not done. Look at verses 50 to 55, Abimelech's death. Verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes and captured it. <clears throat> He's going for Thebes now, another town about 10 miles away. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so that it will not be said of me. A woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through, and he he died. When the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to to his home. Abimelech travels about maybe 10 miles away to a town called Thebes. We don't know why he went there. Maybe he was, had some beef against him as well. Seems to have a beef against everybody. At any rate, he captures the city. There's this tower there also for defensive purposes. Everybody, everybody in the city this time, leaders, townspeople, they all flee there for their protection. They actually went to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech's plan, guess what? Same tactic he used before. He's going to try to burn it down, right? Only this time something different happens. In verse 53, an unnamed woman throws an upper millstone that lands right on Abimelech's head and crushes his skull. Upper millstone, uh, there were two stones used in grinding grain, upper and lower millstone. And I've read different estimates of how much the upper millstone may have weighed, and I still don't know what it weighs. Um, everybody has a different opinion on what it weighs. It doesn't matter. She threw the stone over. It lands right on his head and crushes his skull. Well, Abimelech knows he's going to die from this, this wound he received. And so he says, quick, to his armor bearer, before I die at the hands of a woman, he says, kill me. Because it was a disgrace to be killed by a woman in those days. And so he says, please kill me. So the armor bearer kills him with the sword. Finally, after this reign of terror from Abimelech, he dies. Sorry about all the details, and it's a long chapter, as you can see. We can't very well go to the next week to try to cover it again, but... When his army realized he was dead, they went AWOL. They said, we don't have a leader anymore. It's over with. And they went back home. That leads us to the last few verses, God's justice. In verses 56 and 57, God's justice. Here's the point of the whole story. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, came upon them. Here's the whole point of the account of Abimelech. We, we might think it's just another narrative in Judges that doesn't mean anything at all to us. But all the word of God has something to teach us. Always remember that. And this section is no different. If anybody thinks that they will come into this life and live as they please and do what they please and do what they want to, with total disregard for God, they have another thought coming. They're going to be in for a big surprise. R.G. Lee was right. He said, there is a payday someday. God's going to reward sinners for their evil. 
payday may come after three years of three long years of tyranny, like in the case of Abimelech. It may it may take three years, but payday will come. It will come sooner, or it might come sooner. It might come later, but you can be sure of this: God's payday will come for sinners. God will see to it. Again, R.G. Lee said, "Payday someday is written in the constitution of God's universe." The retributive providence of God is a reality as certainly as the laws of gravity are a reality. Nobody took personal revenge here in this story. God took out his wrath on Abimelech. Leave it to the wrath of God, Romans 12 says, right? Don't take personal revenge. God took his own wrath on Abimelech, who was a sinful man, in his own time, in his own way, right? He used the nameless woman to start this death process of Abimelech, and she used a tool, an agricultural tool, just like we've seen before, right, in Judges. That wasn't a weapon of warfare or anything to bring his downfall, and his nameless personal armor bearer finishes the job with his sword. Of all people, Abimelech would have never thought, I'm going to be killed by a woman and my armor bearer one day. You would have never planned that. He used the evil Abimelech to bring about the downfall of the people of Shechem who foolishly chose Abimelech to be the king. But in reality, Abimelech was only a tyrant driven by his blind ambition. Now, what does all this mean for a world without Christ? It means that for them, there's going to be a payday someday too. The world without Christ is going to face God's payday someday. It means they will ultimately suffer the torments of hell for eternity, which is why we must be the ones who take, who warn them of the coming judgment, just like Jotham warned the people of Shechem about what would happen. We must warn them. What does this mean for believers? It means we can't get away with sin either. God's not going to let us get away with sin because we're believers, because we, you know, some people think we're saved, we're saved for eternity, now we can do what we want to. A guy told me that one time. He said, I know you Christians think that once saved, always saved, and you can do what you want. I said, no, we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere, that you can get away with what you want to if you become a believer and you're on your way to heaven. We don't believe that at all. We can't get away with sin. We will not face a payday in hell because Christ paid the price for us, right? We're not going to pay, face a payday in hell because Christ paid for our sins. But God will not allow his people to go on sinning without being disciplined. He won't do it. It's going to be a payday in that regard as well. So this message is not a popular one for people. They don't want to hear a message about God's judgment to come. But in God's ordering of the world and the way he's done it, he will repay the wicked for their evil. He will do it. There will be a payday someday. This is the clear teaching of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that we'll take it to heart. We pray that we'll see that we have a job to do in warning people of the judgment to come. We, we know that you will judge the world. We pray that we'll have a mercy and compassion upon them by telling them the gospel. And we pray that we would be a, a light for Christ this week. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.